This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that was, well, so good they invited us back. In fact, I invited him back. I, of course, am Scott Phillips. He is Andrew Page from strawman.com. G'day, Andrew. How are you? I'm good, Scott. How's things? I'm, I'm excellent. Thank you very much. We got some. I, I'm starting to get a bit, uh, a bit paranoid, mate. We got some lovely feedback on your inclusion, your return to the podcast last week, which is on one level great. On the other level, we got a whole lot of, oh, I'm sorry, Doc's leaving that. Oh, Andrew's great. And I think, what am I? Just the bloke who's bloody, you know, passed the, pass the, the, the softball, softballs to you blokes. But apparently that is my role these days. But I will I will relish it, mate. I will jump on it because I have fun. You have fun. And our listeners from the sound of it enjoyed it. So thank you for joining us last week, rejoining us last week. And thank you for uh, continuing to join us for the foreseeable, hopefully the long-term future, mate. I'm, I'm hoping we're doing this when we're both old and grey, although... Those who've seen me know I'm not going to go grey because I don't have anything to go grey with. My uh, my my pate is unfortunately bereft of hair. Mate, let's uh, let's. <laughs> that's a massive tangent to get started with. Mate, welcome back. You are from Strawman.com, which is, as you like to say, I say it's a Australia's leading private investment club. There you go, Strawman.com. I, I will actually yeah, share your socials out. later too, mate, because uh, we do have a, a really great following of people on the social, so we'll, we'll do that in a minute. Uh, but first, mate, cool. let's get into the news of the week. Uh, we've got a big podcast again, as we always tend to. Uh, but the RBA this week, uh, the easiest job in the world being RBA governor, because you just turn up and go, yeah, no, nothing to do, and then go go back and you know hide in your hole for another <laughs> three and a half weeks. But there was a little bit of a change in the commentary. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the, the winners and losers in retail land from COVID. Mm. Uh, we're going to have a look at the banks. I did a little bit of work on the banks earlier this week, and I think it's some data worth sharing. I'll be interested to see uh, your thoughts on the big banks. One of the things that really isn't kind of directly ASX related, at least in the sense that it's not listed, but one of the great Aussie success stories in the tech space isn't a household name and isn't listed, but is worth about $20 billion. If you don't know who that is, I will tell you later. And well, mate, there's not much happening. And that's kind of the point. And we'll explain why mm. as we get through the podcast. Plus, if we have time, we'll dip into the full mailbag. What do you reckon we get on with it? Mate, that sounds like a great show. I'm, I'm psyched. Let's do it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's start with the big macro as we tend to do. Um, <clears throat> the RBA this week was, again, surprised absolutely nobody. You could have got... I, I don't know what odds you would have got on a change, mate, but uh, if you're the bookie, you'd be happy to take anyone's money who was betting on the RBA actually changing rates. They've effectively, they've not ruled out an increase or a decrease, but they've pretty much said it is what it is for a while to go. Rates stayed on hold at 0.1%. The RBA continues the, the bond buying program to the extent that's still rolling out. But what's, so look, I guess if you have a reflection on that, I'll, I'll invite you to share that. What was most interesting though is, and this is, I don't know whether to love this or hate this, mate. It's the old, you know, people who go and copy and paste the the, the RBA statements over each other and try and mark up the changes. On one hand, like, mm. it's like, man, there's got to be better things in the world than try to work out whether they use the word caution or cautious or, you know, promising or attractive or, you know, whatever words that change. And the people kind of, you know, they have kittens over changes in the wording, except that the RBA does change the wording knowing that we'll do that. And so... It's kind of one of those things where it doesn't mean anything except that the market thinks it does, so the RBA makes sure it does. And so small changes do kind of matter. And I think this is the yeah, one where yeah. the RBA had said last month, everything was cool, no dramas, lending standards fine. This month they said they'll be making sure lending standards remain okay. And that change mm. is taken by many, perhaps most in the market, to just be a slight move from we don't care to actually we're worried this could get out of control. 
And we're just starting to change the wording so that at some point later this year, if needed, we might put some lending restrictions in place. What do you make of that? Am I am I am I in the rest of the the rest of the market making too much of the RBA tea leaves? Is there anything to be taken from that? Am I am I on the ball? What do you reckon? Well, I, I think this is this is clearly in response to what was it? One of the strongest monthly reads on on house price growth we've had in, in a very years. long time. Yep, amazing. Thirty three. That's it. 30, 33 years. And I mean, just given the context and the backdrop of of how that has happened, I, I think that that is just phenomenal and yeah you know the rba has has uh it has a very blunt tool you know that they've got one sort of lever that they that they can pull and it's a very important one but it but it is a very blunt sort of instrument so that's that's where the sort of the jawboning comes into effect um interest rates are obviously a massive determinant and all of that but there's a lot of other things as well lending standards and 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 the rest of it and and macro prudential controls so Mm -hmm. I, i think they're right to sort of to to um, subtly uh, hint at that kind of stuff. I mean, it sounds, it seems as though it's you know it's a it's a win win with just house prices going up at seven percent each year every year right. for from now until eternity. It's it's actually got a lot of downsides with that, mm-hmm. um, and 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 it is something that you, you can have too much of a good thing. So anyone <laughs> who's holding an investment property or any property right now is probably <laughs> screaming at at, mm. at at their speaker saying, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> Haven't you seen? How much my prices are going up? Yeah, yeah. It's it, well, it, well, it's not. There, there, there are downsides there, and and, they, and if, if if it is too fast, um, you know, the, the trouble with the trouble with the, the the difficulty with what the RBA is doing is that we think well. Ostensibly, the easiest way, if you're if you're worried about that, is just put rates up, and that'll that'll certainly put, <laughs> put a dampener on things. Yeah. But as I said before, it is such it is such a, a blunt instrument. It's got a whole bunch of other ripple effects as well. Right. So you've and and I think this sort of this great unspoken truth, or you know, publicly acknowledged truth amongst all, all of the policymakers and and powers that be, is that. So much of the foundations of the Australian economy sort of rest on this on the property market. So we, we sort of we've painted ourselves into a bit of a corner, so to speak. I mean, the the if if you were to put rates up even back to a quarter of of one percent, which you know is still ridiculously low, yeah. I mean, you would just you would you would knock the knock the legs out from underneath the property market, and 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 that would have huge impacts to the wealth effect and to the wider economy. So you've kind of got this thing where we've got to deal delicately balance it and push it all forward just not too fast and maybe just hope that the sort of the underlying economic growth and activity picks and catches back up with property to sort of renormalize things it's diabolically hard mate so they they are right to sort of say and and hint i think to sort of other whether it be apra or the government to sort of say listen there are some concerns we're not too worried we'll keep an eye on it but you know maybe someone else could 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 help us out here a bit it's a, it's a, I think, and I think, you know, that last point is, I, I've been, and look, listeners know this, I'm not going to go over it too much, mate. You're, you're new back to the podcast or renewed to the podcast. Uh, Alice have certainly heard me bang on about it for a very long time. I don't want to be the RBA governor for love or money. Um, mm. They don't have a choice. Like they have a, they have a very specific mm. mandate and one tool to achieve that mandate. And that's it. That's it, right? You either, mm. you either say, I am abdicating my responsibility to achieve my mandate, which effectively says mm. I have to resign because... If my job as the Motley Fool is to pick winning stocks, I say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, but I want to keep my job, please. Someone's going to say, ah, Scott, so here's the problem. <laughs> you know, It's kind yeah. of what we pay yeah. you for. Um, the RBA governor has had two tools, the interest rate lever and the jawbone. And you know, he, he, at the mm. moment, he has to get mm. inflation to between 2 and 3%. And that's, 
that so so if it's not there you have to drop rates to get it there that's that's all you can do but as you rightly say mm. the impact on that is phenomenal it's a, it's the world's bluntest tool right like it's business confidence it's consumer confidence mm. it's consumer spending it's uh, you know, I mean, I, I I still, you and I are old enough, mate, uh, to remember the Alan Greenspan years, at least a little bit, you know, when we were, I mean, I, you know, I was hardly born, you were about 45 at that point, but uh, the, uh, you know, the, the Greenspan years, Greenspan was a hero for low rates, easy money, low regulation, until it all mm. came crashing down in the early 90s recession, everyone went, oh, that's what can go wrong. And you kind of like, I, yeah, look I'm, how not that gonna, I'm not going to say these mm. are the same thing, but if you look at them and think, hang on, this is kind of the story. You know, the IBA's got no choice. The government has, and I've said this before, use an analogy, the government's flying an F-A-18 fighter jet, right, with dials and switches and computers and knobs and heads-up displays and, you know, every bit of artillery and, and whatever under the sun. The IBA's got this biplane with up, down or sideways and, and we're saying, oh, it's the IBA's fault. And I, I just, I really think, again, you know, like, if, maybe, you're, maybe if, you're, if you're low, you do have to say, all right, I'm going to resign because I, I just, I don't, I don't believe I can do it. I don't believe I should do it. I'm, I'm refusing the commission. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's on him, right? If he chooses to do the job, then he chooses to do the job. But if he's told use rates to get inflation, okay, sure, I can do that. Um, I, I, you know, I just don't mm. think it's over reasonable, mm. only reasonable to expect him to do anything different to exactly what he's doing, unless you change the mandate, um, or unless you supply, as you say, the other guys to actually do some work and say, ah, how about you guys pull your weight here? There's got to be something more that can be done. Yeah, and I, I really don't know what what the outcome of it is going to be. I mean, the, the government. Mm. And this is, I think it's always dangerous when you wade into politics. I, I really want to be um, bipartisan here, but the, right. the, the government cares about votes. And if, if you want to lose votes, you know, yeah. destroy <laughs> or throw a wet blanket on the property market right, and you will right, be right. turfed out quicker, you know, no matter what else, you, your, yeah. your sort of policies. And yeah. so they're, they're going to be hugely incentivized <laughs> just to kick that can down the road, yeah. but let someone else deal with um, uh uh, or, or just just hope that it just it, it goes away. Um, APRA is actually on the record of sort of saying, well, actually, it's not our exact responsibility, our mandate either to look after property prices. Ours is much sort of wider. So it's sort of this can kind of gets passed around. I think everyone yeah. sort of acknowledges that there's sort of a bit of an issue here, but what yep. we're going to do with it, I, I, it's it, as I say, it's a diabolical um, issue. And I think, I think, unfortunately, the media plays a bit of a role in this too because when we did have this really strong read on prices, I mean, you read the headlines and then it's just, it seems to me, particularly some, from some publications, that it just seems like it's an open invite to, to join this party. It's sort of the way it's sort of painted. <laughs> you know, it, just, it really just yep. gets FOMO yep. going. It's yep. the same in the totally. share market, you know, when prices are high. It's, oh, this is great. And the 26-year-old from Bankstown just made a million dollars trading Bitcoin or whatever. Whenever, whenever those sort of easy money sort of headlines and stuff sort of come out I, I i think i think it's a little bit of a worry so so what do you let's let's bring it back to what what do you actually do here i think you just you you, you can't control for what the government is going to do we can sort of mm. talk about that or what the what the rba etc is going to do but I, I think it just means that you as always apply a bit of prudence with with your investing you know just, mm. just don't overextend yourself you know account 
for for things that you might not think are probable, yep. but but may happen. Yep. So you know, don't if you're if you're buying your third investment property and <laughs> you're doing it on the assumption that rates don't change yeah. for thirty years, and yeah. you're in the, and after paying all your interest and mortgage bills and food and everything else yeah. for the for the for the month, you've got zero money left. You are you are on the edge of a knife, you know, and and something could. I'm not saying it will, but something could easily happen. And then again, you see all the headlines in the papers of like, oh, this poor mother of two in Perth, you know, wiped out and this evil bank did this and that. And that's, that's, there's a lot of truth to all of that. But I, I, there is part of me that kind of thinks, listen, you, you, you have to be responsible for yourself. And if you act in a way, whether it's property, Bitcoin shares, whatever, where nothing can possibly go wrong and it's easy money and it, things will be right forever, it's, it's just a bit of a recipe for disaster. So just, just be careful out there. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think, you know, the other thing is that housing has changed. It is now a financial asset in the truest sense of the word where prices mm. fluctuate based on the cost of funding. And that's that's been great on the way up. But if that's true, if, if my assertion is true, then when funding costs go up, pricing should come down. And that's not even necessarily a bad thing as a financial asset. That's what happens, right? Share prices tend to yeah. go up or have upward pressure to use the politician's phrase, which I actually quite like because it's much more accurate even though it feels a bit like a weasel word or weasel phrase. You know, lower rates put upward pressure on asset prices. Higher rates put downward pressure on asset prices. That's what's supposed to happen, right? And that's cool mm. as long as you know that's mm. what's either going to happen or likely to happen if that happens. And as you say, if your funding cost also rises, you have to be ready for that as well. And I, I do feel sorry. Look, I, I'm, I'm a bit more sympathetic than you are for the, the mother of two in Perth. Um, you know, to the extent that... Oh, that sounded really like, harsh in hindsight. I, can, I, can I retract that? Tell that back <laughs> no, no, it's, it's already... I, it's, 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 it's recorded now for life. I'm, I'm going to be playing that one at your funeral. Um, uh, <laughs> no, the, I mean, you know, the, no, I take your point. What, my point is just that, you know, I, I don't think... I think the, the average punter who is taking out an investment loan to buy a property because it's gone up for 40 years, the accountant said it's a good idea to save tax. Like, I, I think we're doing... Well, hopefully you and I aren't, and hopefully this podcast is not doing a massive disservice, but I think as you say about other newspapers and, and, and commentators, there's a whole lot of people doing a very, very serious disservice by only focusing on the right up. Uh, I'm not anti-property, by the way. I, I, I'm, you know, no, I'm anti If rates go up, share prices should have downward pressure applied to them as well. The, the, you know, the, 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 oh, totally. the mats of the algebra of, of discounted cash flows and net present values. But if rates go up, prices of, of shares would be lower than they otherwise would be. That's absolutely what yeah. sh should and will happen, I'm pretty sure. And property will be the same. And I think unless you know that as an investor of shares and property, you should be very, very careful. And frankly, I hope we're doing our job, but other people should be doing more to make sure that people understand what to expect and how. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And one of the biggest dangers with investing in any kind of asset class, and I'm, mm. I'm I know I'm always painted as this person who hates property. I, I don't. <laughs> I really think it's a. I think you just really, I think it's a really, really dislike asset. it. <laughs> I just, I, I, it's a wonderful asset. It genuinely is, but I, mm. I just think a lot of people go into it with expectations that aren't well formed and largely yeah. based on an extrapolation of the past. And that that applies to the share market at at, at times, often mm. at times um, as well. So I just, I just think that is that is uh, a, a real danger. And 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 look at, at the end of the day. Um, we are mainly about the share market, so let's put this in. Let's put this in terms that people can understand. So these no. days, I would say in Sydney, you're probably lucky if you can get a two and a half percent gross yield. So that's before any costs mm -hmm. or, or whatever. Now, again, without doing the maths um, verbally because it's a bit tricky, but that that converts a yield of two and a half percent converts into the language of the share market to a PE of about forty. So you're buying an asset 
with a PE of 40, probably higher when you look at it on a net basis after yep. your council rates and your interest costs and all the, maybe a lot higher. For a business that, for, for a business, for, a, for an asset that historically over the long, 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 long term has probably grown at three to 4% per annum. Now, I know that there's been distortions in that recently. I know there's been a big structural change, um, particularly in the 10 years leading up to 2017. But if I was to sort of say to you, hey, Scott, there's a stock on the market I really like. And you say, oh, yeah, what, what is it? And oh, it does this. But, you know, it's probably it's a pretty mature business. It's probably only going to grow at 3 or 4% per year. You go, mm-hmm. okay, great. What's it worth? And you say, oh, it's, it's at least at a PE of 40. You'd, you'd think I was crazy. <laughs> so it's yeah, not about okay. that the property is, is stupid or is an investment or anything like that. It's like, you know, CSL, what a brilliant business. Like I said last week, is it worth $10,000 a share? Of course not. And there's, there's, the, these are just, these are just I, I think, fundamental considerations that you should mm. always, always apply. And when it comes to property, it's such a long-term asset as well. You, you really, you know, I think it's pretty reckless to try and buy something so highly leveraged and try and flip that six, 12 months later and expect things to all go your way. So if you're, mm-hmm. if you're going in it with a, a long-term uh, horizon, Something that's going to take you 40 years to pay off just without anything moving higher. And I might, might, after uh, after all is said and done, average out at a, at a long-term compound annual gain of 3 to 4%. It just it just seems as though you're asking a lot for that investment. And if, if anything was to go wrong, and again, not saying it will, but that's it's always worth mm-hmm. considering that with any investment, you are on a, you're on a real knife edge. So so just just be careful out there. Be sensible. And as... as um, you know, was it Buffett or, or Benjamin Graham who said the three most important words in investing are margin of safety, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Make a realistic assumption and then dial it back because you are you are in the business of predicting the future and that's a very fuzzy business indeed. Mm. I think that's right. I think and I think that's that's just the that's the message, right? Just be a little bit careful about what you're expecting and what you expect to, to roll off. Mate, let's uh, let's go away from property because uh, we could rant about it all day. Uh, let's move to well, another form of property, actually. Let's get a retail property because there's a fascinating story playing out. So we recorded this Thursday morning, uh, the eighth of April. Uh, a fascinating story in today's media that effectively says retailers win as rents renegotiated is, is the version of the, the headline mm-hmm. I read. I'm not sure. I'm not reading it by, by rote. And you mentioned this this morning before we started recording. So, hey, we need to talk about this. So mm. we know during the worst of COVID, there was a range of responses by a range of retailers. Some like Premier Investments basically saying, we're not going to, we're just not going to pay. Um, others saying, look, we really need you to help us out here. Um, I think Mosaic Brands locked the doors or were they locked out by Westfield? I can't remember exactly. There were, I mean, there was a lot of push and shove that, Frankly, we'd have got a much, much, much bigger. I mean, it was still in the headlines, but it would have been covered in a much more serious way if there wasn't a health pandemic going on at the same time. So that kind of happened at the time, and then everything's gone really, really quiet. But it seems this morning, as I said, that the retailers have had a win here. Yeah, well, so so I, I saw the article as well. So that what they're talking about here is that retailers have, have done well in renegotiating their, their rents. So they're securing anywhere between 5 and 10% reductions for short-term uh, lease renewals and between 15 and 20% discounts for new leases. Um, uh, just just because I guess it's a, basically a supply demand uh, dynamic after the, the the pandemic. You know, the, the mm-hmm. big shopping centres, the retail landlords have have space. Um, there's there's fewer people uh, out there. Um, the, you know, the, the the power dynamic has shifted to the retailers. So. It's great news. Um, it's great news. Well, not great news for the landlords. It's great news for retailers <laughs> and hopefully great news for consumers yeah, in the sense yeah. with lower lower costs, hopefully that translates to the potential for lower prices and, and, and sort of 
we all win. Although what was interesting, mate, is in, in, the, in the same publication, I believe this was the AFR, they then in the very next article said that um, transport uh, costs have increased dramatically. So shipping container <laughs> yeah, costs, particularly out of right. China, have gone up a lot yeah, yeah. as well. And, and I sort of, I read it with a bit of a wry smile because I know um, a former colleague of mine and, and colleague of yours, uh, uh, Joe Mager, is, is uh, really instilled in me in my time at The Fool that just how, how tough a business retailing um, can be. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think today's sort of mix of headlines really sort of emphasizes that. Um, but I thought it's also just having a, worth having a bit of a chat about that. Where you as an investor, maybe you've got some Kogan shares, maybe some DJs, whatever it is, you've any sort of retail exposed, shaver shop, et cetera. What does that, all, all of that mean, particularly after some of them have gone so well in, in during lockdown? So mm. I, I was interested. What are, you, what are your thoughts on all of that? <laughs> Throw me straight under the bus. Thank you, mate. Um, big, big, big question. Yeah, look, <laughs> so I, I, I've been saying for a very long time that I think – so, so we'll start with property. Retail REITs, I think, are an absolute ticket to nowhere. Now, again, you and I are long-term investors. I have no, or as David Garden says, the Motley Fool co-founder, long-term investing should be a tautology because investing should be long-term. Uh, so I always feel guilty when I say yep. long-term investing, but it's important to remind our listeners. Um, it's, a, it's a challenging place to be because not only is retail always tough, and there are always, you know, businesses going out of business in retail because they just simply can't make a make a buck. You've got this online thing that, and I'm a Kogan shareholder, as our listeners well know. But you've got this online juggernaut, whether it's Amazon or Amazon, Amazon as well, Kogan, Temple and Webster, um, even JB's online efforts, mm. Harvey Norman's online efforts. The the future is online, right? And I don't think anyone doesn't believe that. And I think what I worry about with retail is. We, you know, retailers go broke in good times. <laughs> you know, as you say, retail can be a really tough business. Now, by yeah, the way, yeah. I think you can, you can buy, I'm actually less of a, I'm, I'm less critical about retailer than you and Joe. I think you can find good retailers. We've made some decent money for our members with some retailers, but you gotta be really, really careful, right? And I think the reality of, of unit economics, yeah. which is a term that we don't have a lot of time and effort and space to go into, but the idea basically is a three or 4% sales growth for a retailer can, can rain cash. Three or four percent decline can actually yeah. be enough to gum up the entire works. It's not a direct comparison, but Woolworths and Coles net margins are about four percent of sales. So if you lose yeah. your now yeah. again, there's not even a direct comparison. But if you lose four percent of your sales, that close enough to wipes out that margin. Mm. Now, if you're a fashion retailer, maybe it's ten percent, yeah. maybe it's not. But if you imagine a situation where you close your clothes are a little bit out of style, and your competitors are getting a little bit hot, and the economy falters a little bit. That's a really, really, really crappy combination. And that's where you do get, particularly yeah. discretionary retailers, get into trouble really fast. Now, that's at the retail end. If you're the landlord mm. and you've got the pressure, which is, so that's kind of cyclical-ish. You've got this secular pressure of over the next 10 years, I'm absolutely sure online retailer gets to $1 in maybe five, maybe 20% of all retail sales are online in 10 years' time, maybe. Um, mm. And you've got the same number of shopping centers you had 10 years earlier. I don't know how you make that maths work. And so for the retailers themselves, but you know, a retailer can, can go online. A property REIT can't go online. It's, by definition, is a real estate investment trust. The property is the property is the property. Uh, unless Westfield or, or, or Centre, what are they called these days? Vicinity Centres, I think, is that still a name? That might have changed again. Um, I mean, unless you guys launch online shopping malls all of a sudden and become Amazons, uh, who's, who's going to be, who are the tenants in 10 years' time in these places yeah. that are 
big enough. So their answer to that is it's mu- it becomes much more of a destination for services and entertainment. So your your shopping mall of yesteryear is still there. It just it's just d- different. You're not going to go there to to yeah. buy a lot of stuff that you can so m- much more easily buy online. But you might go there to go ice skating or mm-hmm. to see a movie mm-hmm. or to see a bit of a show or to eat yep. out at a restaurant. And it, it just, it becomes, and, and I, I actually think that there is some substance to that. I think no matter how good online shopping can be, we are a social species. There is yeah. something about yeah. getting out there and people watching and no, we're always <laughs> going to want that, you know, um, you just can't but sit inside it, I guess that's your, my your house right? all I think it's less of it. I think, I think yes. that's the point. So the number of shopping yes. centers, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about Westfield, but I reckon their center group is best placed because they are the premium centers. Mm. If you yep. want a day out to the shops and the movies yep. and the restaurants and the whatevers, then you might get a Westfield Bondi Junction or Parramatta or uh, Pacific Fair or Chadston or I'm trying to do all the, all the states here. Apologies to uh, Northern Territory, SA and WA, who, and Tasmania, whose large shopping centers I don't know. Feel free to let me know. Um, the you know the, the the kind of the simple reality of that I think is if you're mid tier if you're if you're not a local shopping center where you go and get your groceries or and frankly that's going to come under mm. pressure as well but you know someone's going to go to the local to get the groceries and grab a coffee and maybe grab a shirt from Lowe's or something or you're a big one you're a destination you're going to go further than you used to now you go ten minutes to that do that maybe you go twenty minutes to do that because there are fewer of them in future but if you're that mid tier. Mm offering not much shopping mall, but there's a few dress shops, a few fashion shops, a few cafes, a couple of, you know, whatever's, um, I, I think you're in real trouble. And even, I've got to say, mate, even as you say, and this yeah. is, I'm not, like, I'm not a huge futurist, I'm not a huge tech destroys everything kind of guy. But if you think about, you just talk about sh- movies. Okay, well, there's Netflix. Uh, restaurants, go to eat. Well, there's Uber Eats. Again, these things are going to destroy these <laughs> businesses, but each, almost every one of those things, other than literally the human connection of being in front of somebody, um, mm. You know, the, the, what services does a, does a Westfield offer that you literally, short of physical activity, mm. and again, maybe you've got Peloton and other gym stuff, but I don't know. And again, that my, my issue, I'm not saying things are going to go to zero in retail or, or even for those REITs. My concern is more that a small decrease is enough to completely destroy the entire business model of a retailer. And frankly, not much more than that destroys the model of a REIT because, again, we talked about property before. These things assume if, if you're less than 95% occupancy, you're effectively going broke. So you've got to keep full yeah, to yeah. justify valuation, justify yeah. cost, justify share prices. It's it's a really tough thing. So the, one thing I want to dig into here before we move on is, mm. is you, and you've touched on this um, and you're talking there and before, is that there's there's two things to sort of look at when I think you're looking at retailers or, or, or retail-associated things. And, and one is to look at things from what you might call a structural perspective and the other mm. is a cyclical perspective. Now, a cyclical perspective is just the up and downs of the economy and consumer sentiment and all of those things. And that, that, that is always going to be an up-down kind of affair and that is just... Mm. That is just, you know, par for the course when it comes to a retailer. So when you're looking at a retailer, for me, I think it's just a mugs game to try and forecast what sales are going to be in the next quarter, half or even year. But if you can sort of say, look on at, look, they'll have good periods and bad periods. The economy will do its thing. But on average over time, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is a retailer that can probably grow at sort of upper single digits rates. I think I think you can right. actually make a very sensible investment case and do very well out of that as a long-term investor. Just knowing that you got to roll with the punches when it, when it comes because it's, it's it's always going to be like that even for the best retailers look at JB Hi-Fi look at look at others right, you know right, they, right. they always they always have that and that's fine that is that is fine a structural perspective is something different that is when you are sailing 
well, either into, uh, against or, or uh, the wind or with the wind at your back. And these are much more mm-hmm. dominant, longer-term trends. So this is, I mean, let's let's look at what happened with, with uh, Myers and, and what's happening with DJs. I mean, I really don't think they survive for the next 10 years, to, to be honest, or not without a massive uh, uh, pivot. And that's Go just on. not just through the vagaries of the economic cycle. That They are big structural changes in terms of how the industry works. And so what we're really talking about here in terms of the broader online threat and what that means for REITs and all the rest of it, this is, these are structural challenges, which mean that even if you've got a really compelling product and you've got the best management team, it's not impossible to do well, but it's much, 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 much harder to do well. Flip that around and look at some of the areas in this space which have structural tailwinds against Mm. them. Temple and Webster might be a really great example uh, Mm. uh, here where where they're actually benefiting from this this tailwind. Now, sure, they're still going to have these cyclicalities and that's still going to impact things, but geez, it's much easier going. So I just, I would, I would as an investor in this space, try and tease apart the issues that you're looking at and define them as either long-term structural, short-term cyclical. Short-term cyclical, you can be much more sanguine about you know that's that that is it is naive to think you're going to get smooth consistent easy growth from a retailer um uh and and you you can take the lumps but if it's if it's a longer term structural trend um you you open yourself to a bunch of value traps when i'm guilty of this in the past you think yeah i mean sure things aren't great and they've got some challenges (laughs) but geez it's cheap uh you know it's in it's in the price and i've that's been a lesson that that I've I've had to suffer a few times, but I think finally it's stuck. Where it's just kind of like, it's just it's it, you're making things much harder for yourself than than it needs to be. Go 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 where the wind is at yep. your back. Yeah, for sure. I think that's right. I, I I'm not going to talk about it now, mate, because we've got a full a full card and we're we're, we're getting on, t- on a time anyway. But I um, it's probably an academic thought right now. Probably not overly investable because of market inefficiencies. But I I'm a little bit of a contrarian at heart, and I have to say the whole thing about we buy tech because it's tech because it's tech and it's got a bit more growth and we're going to avoid stuff that's lower growth because it's lower growth i think that's right only to the extent that it only if and when and it probably is currently the case so it's i think i think it's probably true but it's only true to the extent that that's mispriced you know if if, if everyone yes. was priced correctly in 1997 yes. it, it matches the market over the last 20 years and that's yeah. kind of you know there's nothing magical about high growth companies if they're priced appropriately if you if you're buying yeah. growth and not you personally, but you know if people are buying growth companies because they're going to do better on the share market. That's only true to the extent the market misprices them at the at the present time. If 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 the likes of an Afterpay yep. or a again an Amazon or a Google or an Apple or a whatever was appropriately priced earlier in its journey, the returns from there would be by definition market matching all, all you're doing is looking for market inefficiencies and the the growth story and the value story by the way is exactly the same but it's just a reminder that there's nothing there's nothing about growth that says you will do better investing in growth companies because they're growth companies because if they're already appropriately couldn't priced, agree you, know, more. Talk about, you mentioned you know property at 40 times earnings um you know like that, that's that's the point right if, if property is if there's nothing bad about property they're not going to fall down because they're you know the property market isn't bad the properties themselves aren't bad the buildings aren't bad although couple of apartment blocks in Sydney that might might not uh, have have something to say about that. But there's nothing bad about properties as in the buildings. The question is, am I paying too much for that or am I paying not enough for that? If I find a knockdown property at stupidly cheap price, I'm going to buy it. It doesn't matter what happens with the rest of the market. And I just, I just, it's only, it's it's a germ of a thought. And again, it it may be just purely academic right now because growth may be mispriced and may continue to be mispriced for years, in which case you can keep investing in it. I just wanted to make the point that when people say, 
I'm not going to buy company X because there's no growth. Or I'm going to buy company Y because it's growing really fast. That's that's literally immaterial. If the pricing is efficient, yes. If the pricing is inefficient in either I, direction, I, I, that's the question. I hundred percent agree. It's a secondary point. So my, my point is just like when you when when you sit down to make an investment in anything, you, you need to have some rough kind of gauge as to, to what that asset is going to do. And yes, so in terms of a retailer, true. what we're yep. talking about, what what kind of growth? Is, so so yes, that, and that's where I think that structural cyclical. Uh, dichotomy that 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 needs to be that needs to be looked at very closely. Mm. Then mm. you're 100 percent right. The second step is is how do you price it? DJ's at one cent a share is probably a, a much much better investment than Amazon at ten thousand dollars a share. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, even though yeah. one is a far superior business, will grow at much <laughs> higher rates for much longer periods of time, and one is probably in terminal decline. You know, it's Perfect. still yeah. a better investment. So valuation matters, and I think frankly that is the biggest mistake that I I really see with with mm. people new people to the share market particularly over the last year, where they say, oh, I really like company X, Y, and Z. And you go, okay, why is that? And they'll say there'll be a narrative there that, oh, you know, this sector is going to grow really, really rapidly over the next 10 to 20 years. And it's like, well, that that is a good starting point. I agree. But that that alone doesn't mean you invest in it. And that alone doesn't justify any price. The classic one being here with bat, you know, electric vehicles, batteries, and, and therefore for lithium, which let's let's not get into on this particular episode. But I, I will reiterate that point that you make very, very, very uh, well, which is valuation matters. Tattoo it on your forehead um, uh, and mm-hmm. do it in reverse so it makes sense in a mirror but make sure you do it because it, it is it is super important <laughs> if i was if i was smart enough or clever enough mate i'd i'd work out how to pronounce that backwards and, and there'd be a really pithy uh, riposte here that makes me look really smart but i can't so i'm not going to <laughs> no i can't do that either motley fool money financial advice for real people not trust fund hippies sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m let's move on to banks because I, I read about banks earlier this week, and I'm going to say I've already I've already given you a heads up on this one, so I'm not going to ask you to guess because either you have to then uh, pretend you don't know and, and and make me look smart or uh, guess right, and it completely destroys the the whole facade of the theatre of the mind. I did some work earlier this week, mate, and I looked at the banks, the big four banks, between 2016 and 2020. So those five years, beginning of 2016 to 2020, and it turns out, and listeners, if you let play the game with us, what do you reckon the bank share price return was? Over those five years, okay. So, so have a think right now. Now let me let me add some context. The market, the ASX two hundred, was up twenty four percent over that time. So you know, if you've if you've made a guess, maybe you have a think about that and say, okay, well, does my guess now seem right? So adjust your guess. How, what do you reckon the bank share prices did over that period of time? Now, I've given you a slight hint because I said, what did they do? Not how much were they up? Yep, bank share prices were down. Not only were they down, <laughs> they were down twenty two percent. Over five years, you lost a quarter of the capital value of. That's the a fifty percent, fifty percent underperformance. Right, that's the other thing, right? So you lost a quarter, you lost, you lost, you lost, you lost a dollar in, you know, a dollar in five, a dollar in four over that period of time. Plus, you missed the opportunity to turn that dollar, you know, into or that's five dollars, four dollars into a much larger number. So if you bought the ASX, your hundred dollars worth one hundred and twenty-four. If you bought the banks, your dollar was worth about seventy-eight cents. That's a big, big now. I'm not including dividends. Banks, bank dividends are slightly above the average for the ASX 200. Bear in mind, by the way, and this is the other thing, mate. So not only do you miss the market by 47 points, the banks were in that ASX 200 result. So I, I, I didn't do the numbers. I didn't try. I don't know if I can do it in capital IQ. Maybe I can. I didn't try and back the banks out of the S&P, uh, S&P ASX 200. If I had, the S&P ASX 200 would have been up even more than that because by definition, the growth of that 
index is, you know, would have been much better. And so there's always that part of the story, which is how do you think about the, you know, the market X, the banks are probably a third of the market size. So if you do the maths, the ASX being up 24% probably went up 28, 30, maybe even 32% by the time you adjusted for the banks not being in them. So that, that's, that's the market, including the banks, which the banks dragged down by being down by 22%. I say all that, mate, because and it's not including dividends and bank dividends are a bit more than the average ASX, so maybe it closes the gap. The problem is it doesn't close the gap entirely, right? This is not a there's not a there's not a gap closing that happens just because you add some dividends back in. Now I should also say, since the beginning of this year, bank share prices have gone up nicely. So again, I'm not I, I don't want to so that I, I'm not trying to say banks are therefore terrible because I chose a five year period where they were bad. What I want to say and want to suggest is for those of you who are still owning the banks, despite our regular commentary about them, and you're thinking to yourself, I oh, know banks are fine, they're solid, they're good, I won't lose money owning the banks, banks always go up, banks go up because property prices go up, all that good stuff that happens. Um, I understand the motivation for that thought. The data, though, <laughs> doesn't suggest that's always true. And it kind of goes back, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, mate, because it kind of goes back to our property conversation before, but if property prices don't keep going up, and bank margins don't keep going up. Uh, you've got to ask yourself, where do bank profit growth come from? And if it doesn't, and again, back to the valuation question we just had, how much are you paying for the banks on that basis? Um, I asked someone asked me on Twitter, I, I, I tweeted about this during the week. I'll share our Twitter handles in a minute, mate. Um, I tweeted about this during the week. And the the feedback came from, uh, from, from you know, one response said, well, why do you think that is? Why did the banks underperform? And I basically said, look, tepid profit growth and, and previously overvalued shares and if that's true that's kind of the point and I, and I think that's you know valuation matters as you've rightly pointed out it dovetailed nicely into this piece but I just wanted to mention that because the other thing I had people say is well but think about the capital gains tax I would have had to pay if I'd sold the banks I said well if you'd sold the banks you would have effectively had as much cash left as you do now after you pay the tax because maximum capital gains tax let's assume you're on the highest tax rate you pay your capital gains tax I'm going to round it up and call it 25% guess what that tax is about as much as the bank's prices fell over that five-year period and you missed out on the ASX growth because you're still in the banks. So even if you paid every cent, if your cost base was zero, which it's not, and your tax rate was you know, the highest, so called 25% capital gains tax rate, which it won't be, and you paid all that <laughs> and you, know, you, you bought the ASX 200, you would have been better off. So a couple of lessons. Banks aren't always great. Tax matters, but should never drive your investment decisions. And... After all that, I just want our listeners to think about what the future for those banks might be. If I burst your bubble on how the banks were always great, then good. Not because I'm saying they're going to necessarily be terrible, but I'll tell you what, I would if I owned banks now, I'd be selling them. Um, if I owned a lot of them, I didn't want to sell all of them, I'd at least be selling some. Uh, if only because the future doesn't look super bright for the banks, particularly, frankly, after this run up in the last three months. Um, I don't know, mate, I don't know if you have any different thoughts, but I'd be, I'd be very, very cautious about how much exposure I have to banks in my portfolio moving forward. No, mate, it's, it's hard to add too much. I, I agree thoroughly with all of that. Back in the day when we first did this podcast, we were both ranting about the banks and, and not, <laughs> not being good value. And right. it, it, I think it, it underscores a couple of really important lessons um, here. And again, it's just not, not that... And this is a good example too. It's not as though we it, neither of us thought that you know they're going bankrupt or you know you'll lose all your money. No, but mm -hmm. I mean that is a massive underperformance, and that is a very real cost. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes as it comes from two reasons. One is that that extrapolation I spoke of before. So from the mid '90s, you know, through to the GFC, mm -hmm. that just the banks just did 
so amazingly well. It was hard. It was any stock market seminar that I did or that other people, and you're trying to make the case for the the, the, the sense and reason of investing in the market. You'd put up CBA and say, hey, if you had just bought this and yeah. held, you know, and the big blue chip, safe, dividend paying, be around for a hundred years, you know, and, and, it, and it, it, it just, it, that extrapolation was dangerous. And it comes back again, nicely dovetailing with what we were talking about before with these structural factors. There were, there were things there that were a distortion to longer-term norms. Uh, namely, I would probably say the rise of, of, of the, uh, and the financialization of, of the property market, um, but also other things too, like the rise of the dual-income family, totally. um, uh, lower interest rates, all these other sort of structural factors as well that came into that, which again, you just can't extrapolate indefinitely into the future. The other one comes to valuation, um, yeah. uh, which is which is the, the, the point that you made nicely. But there's also been other other structural issues as well, such as, you know, um, uh, the, the rise of sort of neobanks and different online facilities and services and stuff that are just going to make it harder and harder and harder for the banks. So Damn. look, um, when the first thing I did when I thought, oh yeah, let's talk about this or why why have they done so poorly is is you bring up the the per share earnings performance of these banks and lo and behold they're all down by the same amount which is another great reminder that over time you know the market is a weighing machine not a voting machine lo and behold if earnings perform like that over a five-year period shares are probably going to do about the same um, and the final lesson that's worth reiterating here is this we touched on it last week and you've mentioned it again and I'll, I'll mention it one more time which is this <laughs> silly silly idea of avoiding doing something because of tax reasons do yeah. everything in your power to sensibly minimize tax mm -hmm. but you've got to factor in this this bit of a fuzzier concept of option op, um, opportunity cost mm -hmm. and and for the sake of having to wear a little bit of a capital gain and by the way any capital gain is 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 great news it means you've you've done well <laughs> um uh, you you've cost yourself big time and this this is particularly aimed at, at the baby mm -hmm. boomers in my life um that mm -hmm. i know who i've made this comment to every day as long as I can remember over the last every time I've spoken in the last five years and like, oh I would yeah. but and they'll say oh yeah but I only bought Commonwealth Bank at four dollars so it doesn't matter and it's like that, that is so stupid on, on one hand the market doesn't know or care what you paid and all right. you've got today is what do I do with the assets at my disposal so all of this thinking has 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 eroded a lot of wealth for people. So that was then. Mm, this is now. Yeah. I'll just finish up by sort of saying I don't think the dynamic has improved um, uh, much at all, particularly given that that twenty five percent odd rebound that we've seen in in recent times. Right. Um, the banks. I think all the major banks will be around for at least another fifty years. You know, no doubt. You know, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be much bigger profitable businesses in 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 the future to where they are now, maybe not on a market share basis, but you know where they are now. But I just I just don't think that the, that value is in is in the price, and I think yep. that um, back to opportunity cost. There's just there's just better risk reward propositions out there. So it's a big fat pass for me. There you go. That's what I sum it up, mate. I think that's exactly that's exactly right. We're not even predicting necessarily share prices will fall. Just do you really reckon right now banks are the stocks you want to own for the future? Uh, given the alternatives, given the average market gains, given the headwinds or at least the lack of tailwinds facing the banks, I think it's a tough ask. Well, one more quick dovetail with what mm. we were saying before. Mm. I mean, the other thing, you can't think about banks without thinking about the property market. I'll let other people make the inferences there, but again, that <laughs> goes to a, a tide a tide at the hip. <laughs> there we go. Uh, let's let's, uh, let's uh, have a look at something. I mentioned earlier, I mentioned the $20 billion Australian company that many people haven't heard of. Um, in fact, many in the, in the media, even in the financial media, haven't heard of this business. It's called Canva. Now, if you're someone who does any graphic design for any purpose, everything from email newsletters through to 
packaging through to business cards. Canva is taking the, I'll say the world by storm. I think it's all pretty reasonable, actually. It's yeah, totally. Uh, you know what? I, so I was I was asked about this the other day on a on a podcast. I was I was actually uh, guest on, and uh, and I was kind of uh, and and it's hard to it's hard to really describe Canva in a way that makes it sound like it's worth twenty million dollars because mm. it's kind of a graphic design program. And you're gonna mm. go, okay, so that's okay, so so it's it's, you know, it's Microsoft Paint, right? Or it's it's Microsoft. How's that worth twenty billion dollars? And I actually get that kind of viable that that question, that concern, that whatever you want to call it. Um, but the difference is that this is a really cool piece of kit that so many people are using and paying for because it just makes life bloody simple. We use it at The Fool. Um, uh, we've, we've used it for quite a while. I, I've used it a couple of times and I'm not very good at it, but even I can kind of manipulate some images and change some text and stuff. And it's just, it, it, I, I don't even necessarily, I'm not, I'm not even necessarily saying it's worth this much money. I don't have a view on it as an investment. Uh, I'm really super impressed that, you know, I think it was out of Perth originally. Uh, the founders yep. kind of just realized they needed something to do this and kind of started to code it and then it started to do They actually well. started it um, for, for a high school yearbook is how, yeah, they, right. Isn't is that how cool? they started so it. It's, yeah. just, it's, just, it's just kind of nice, right? I also like the fact that, you know, it can, this is kind of, it's, it literally is, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to overdo it. This is the garage story, right? It's not the Silicon Valley tech hub, ex-Google geniuses who started this new company. As you say, it was literally like, hey, can we find a better way to do this? And yes, there's a million of them. And I, I'm, I've talked about success porn in the past, the idea that, you know, uh, just because it's been successful doesn't mean it was always going to be or that no one else, you know, there might've been a million failures while this one did well. And I'm always super careful not to overly lionize these sort of successes. It's someone was going to be successful at some point doing something like this. Um, so maybe it's more inevitable than otherwise. And, and trying to pick who it might've been is obviously difficult, but they've worked hard, they've done well. And it's, you know, on the back of an Afterpay or an Atlassian, it's kind of nice to see an Australian success story that really, as you say, came from a high school yearbook in, in I'm pretty sure it was Perth. Um, yep, And they've just, it they've just you know, made this business. And, and I've, I've listened to a podcast, I can't remember which one it is now, ages ago with, with the founder, I think it was Melanie, I think it was her name. Uh, and she talks about, the, you know, the, the hassle and I think a partner oh, might have gone great. and slept on a couch in the US for X months while they tried to get someone to yep. put some VC money into this thing. And it's just, it's just a really, really cool story. So, you know, I don't, I have no investment view on Canva. I have no idea how much it's, um, what sort of multiples they're talking about, what sort of growth they expect. But $20 billion is the valuation based on a, on a capital raising round this week. So the money, that, that's real, right? Someone's prepared to put money into a business based on it having a total value of $20 billion. That's not small beer. Um, not no one's buying it for that money, but if you're investing at that rate, you're trying to do the, uh, you're trying to do the right thing. I, I just, I think it's worth celebrating. It's worth saying, hey, guess what? If you don't know Canva, have a look around. There's plenty of stories in the press. They obviously put a press release out and every business journal jumped on it. So there's plenty of stories around. Google it, Google Canva. $19.7 billion is the current valuation based on a, on a value of 15 US billion dollars. So a really, really, really cool story, mate. Yeah, it is. And um, I think there's a lot of lessons here. You, you do have to be, as you, as you touch on, mindful of survivor, survivorship bias because there's, yep. there's plenty of other sort of Canva wannabes out there that probably had just as good tech but for, for a variety of reasons didn't make it. That being said, I think when so these guys have fifty five million users, so and a very like an eye watering kind of valuation. But it, I think it actually makes sense without having done mm. that real deep dive on the financials mm. here, and and it's 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 a story of our era, which is you know this just did not happen in in previous eras. Is that when <laughs> right. you have something like this. 
Mm. You you do have a global market. You do have um, virtually zero net marginal costs. So if mm. I sign up to to Canva today, it doesn't cost them any. Their costs don't increase. They just that everything I pay just goes straight to the bottom line. So that, back to that unit economics thing you mentioned before. Um, which is really, really nice. But most importantly, yep. it has this wonderful characteristic that's, that all the best tech businesses have and not even uh, other non-tech businesses, which is what, what you call a network effect. So mm. today, if I think and I start looking around for a design uh, platform, I'm going to yeah. choose Canva. Um, I'm going to choose it because it's, it, it has the most other users, so it's going to be most familiar to everyone else. Um, they've got the most success. They've got the most funding, so they've got the most R&D, which means they've always got the best product, which is likely mm. to always sort of stay there. Um, and it, it, it's, this, it's this positive, virtuous feedback loop, this lovely flywheel that gets spinning. I, I, I love these kinds of businesses, and you're right. The full and Same thing with Atlassian too. That, that's, that's a big part of, of their success. Um, so, so a couple of things. Um, it is a masterclass in 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 um, tech success, I, I suppose. But it also shows you exactly the kind of characteristics you want to look for in a tech company. And the danger, of course, is that everyone says, "Oh, it's got network effects, therefore it's worth infinity." <laughs> you know, so you, you can run too far with that kind of stuff. But it, it yeah. does show you the power of these models when they go right. And I, I would say that Canva has still has a long way to run. I like that, mate. Really, really strong. And it's a really important kind of uh, thing to think about. I think that's the uh, – the only thing – again, just because I'm contrarian, the only thing I would say is that we very easily say, hey, they've got the most R&D, so therefore they'll be successful. I think that tends to be right. <clears throat> but the reality is Canva wasn't the company with the most R&D for a very, very long time. And there's yeah, other graphic design yeah. packages out there that other people are using. I And I say that only not – to, not, to, not to disagree with you for the sake of it, but I, it's just I, I want to kind of give that counterpoint to that point just because for our listeners listening it's tempting to kind of go hey this is the new guy in town not not canva necessarily any any company in any industry uh you know oh they're the biggest therefore they'll be the best therefore they'll keep doing x and yet innovators come past and blow past these guys you know walmart's the biggest retailer therefore they've got the best operations therefore they can never you know no one else could ever compete against them on price oops there goes amazon um and again yeah amazon's an easy and cheap example to use because it's obviously massively successful but i, I, I only raise the point because uh, you know, yes, those those positives you mentioned are absolutely right. And I'm sure Campbell will keep being really successful, but it's like people who say, you know, well, they, they, this company, uh, you know, that this this company's got high switching costs. And it, well, hang on, someone switched from someone else to that company for that reason. At some point, the switch costs can't be that high, and then to switch again, you know, there'll be a time when these businesses that the current disruptors get disrupted themselves when they become the standard. Um, and so I just, I just I just want to I just want to float that out because. Um, you know these things are, are cyclical or generational or, or whatever the right uh, whatever the right metaphor is to, to try and describe that sort of impact. And I think that's just worth being mindful of on, on, a, on a you know from a future perspective. No, I, I concur with that. They, these aren't guarantees. They, they're just it's, it's a moat, right? A, a moat a moat can be crossed. Armies yep. armies can overcome <laughs> yeah, them. And I like um, that. That's great. It just makes it harder. So when yeah, you're like looking that. for an attribute, you know, you you want you want to see these attributes because because they are so powerful. Yep. Um, interestingly enough, when someone else does, and this is what Canva did as well, it's another type of moat that doesn't get talked about much, mm. which is one you might term as counter positioning, 
where the business model is so vastly different that the incumbents just can't afford to switch model because it just destroys mm-hmm. their you, you literally have to destroy your existing at the present very profitable um, valuable v- business mm-hmm. to ensure success in 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 the new era and and right. very few businesses are ever prepared to do that Kodak is probably the classic example here with, yeah, with digital right. cameras and, and and their film business and the rest of it so so you're right I mean these, these aren't these aren't these aren't factors that just give you a license to pay anything mm-hmm. and to ignore all <laughs> other things, but they are, yeah. they are really nice. And, uh, you know, if you, if you can find them, then they are a big tick. Mm. I'm not sure if I, um, I'm not sure if I said this last week, I may have, um, you mentioned Kodak, uh, when, when I'm on, when I'm on radio as a guest, or when you're on radio as a guest, we're supposed to be the pithy kind of people who are r- really insightful and useful. I was asked about AMP. And I said, look, AMP had the chance one, once upon a time of being the, the JP Morgan or the Citibank or the whatever finance. They were the only national name in Australia. They had the literally the world at their feet, the bull by the horns, the you know, picky metaphor. They, they were, you know, they, in, in some other universe, most, maybe most other universe, AMP is the biggest financial name in Australia right now. Such was its reputation, its breadth. It, it had a massive sales force. So I was like, yeah, it could have been the JP Morgan. And, and Brooke Cordy on 2GB's Money News said, Instead, it ended up being the Kogan of Australian finance. Sorry, the Kodak of Australian finance. I'm like, yep, (laughs) that's exactly. And I was like, you know what? I wish I'd said that. Um, And that was kind of it, right? I think AMP is another example, right? Of like, if you go back to 1970, I don't know, two or five or seven or something, and described AMP and then said, what's going to change over the next 35 years? And said, Mm. and guess what? I've got AMP shares. I was like, oh, you lucky bugger. Like, guess how much money you're going to make? And of yep. course, we know over the last twenty years, AMP shares have fallen about ninety five percent. And it's just one of those, maybe ninety. It's just one of those stories of, for all the all the benefits, all the the, the you know the moat, as you said, AMP. I mean, you know, there was all the Australian banks were these state based little bitterly things that were all. I mean, maybe Commonwealth Bank, if you want to stretch, NAB was kind of there or thereabouts. Westpac was the Wales Bank or the Bank of New South Wales at one point. I mean, these were, mm. you know, these were these were little regional banks against this national finance powerhouse that really has mm. no excuse to be where it is today and yet they've just fought hurdle after hurdle after hurdle after hurdle and maybe they finally come back but as you say when you're not prepared no, to they change haven't. what you're doing to meet the conditions mm. to actually be part all i had to do was say here's where this here's where the things are going the old wayne grisky quote about yeah. you know skating where the puck's going Here, here's how things are changing let's make sure mm. we, we have a, a, a seat at that table so they went no no, no we're saying over here it's like, oh, guys. And as yeah. you say, that's, that's the Kodak story of you saw it coming, you invented the first digital camera, and you said, no, we don't want it. Thanks very much. It is, it is just bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. Or, or when you do move, you, do, you move so slowly and so poorly. And again, to pick on DJs here, I mean, look at their online yeah. site. It's laughable. You know, yeah. it's sort of, it's so awful. And, and sort of like, so ostensibly, you sort of, you know, they, they, what's the Gandhi quote? First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, you know, then they, yeah, right, oh, right. I forget exactly how it goes, but, but you, you can see the yeah, boards yeah. of these, yeah, you know, and, and the boards of these companies, you can see the sort of, sort of deriding these new entrants yeah. and then, and then finally sort of trying to copy them and doing it poorly. <laughs> it's just is such a mess, you know, exactly. Red flag, exactly. stay away from any, any, anytime you see a, a, a board and management team that is in denial of very mm-hmm. obvious futures mm-hmm. or feel as how for some reason they're immune. It, oh man, it's, it is, it is a huge red flag. Mm-hmm. Mate, I'm going to finish with a question from the full mailbag. This is a great one. We talked about tax a little bit uh, in this podcast. We've got a, a great tax question from Stephen. And the answer, the theoretical answer is easy. The practical answer is much harder. So here's Stephen's question. He says, hi, Scott and Andrew. I've tri- I have a question about selling. 
If I have a stock that I don't think will go much higher or lower, should I sell it before one year and add the money to a stock I think will go higher? Or should I wait another four months, then sell once one year is up to save on the capital gains tax? I've made about 25% on the stock in eight months, says Stephen. Now, the theoretical answer is easy. I'm not sure the Yogi Berra quote about, you know, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. What, what would you say to Stephen, mate? I would say a couple of things. I would say, firstly, um, whether you are up 25%, down 50%, it's irrelevant to your... To, I, I, it's something I, I, I fundamentally believe at the core of my being. And it is so many people and investors I speak to sort of frame their decisions around what they have made in the past. I mean, it, it, mm, is, mm. it is irrelevant, okay? It is very relevant to, to, your, to your performance, to your scorecard, to your tax, all that kind of stuff. It is irrelevant to your future capital allocation decisions. Mm, Whether mm. you've got $10,000 in shares now that used to be 20,000 or used to be 2,000, you've got that $10,000 now. What do you do with it going forward? Because you can't influence <laughs> the past. So, right. so it, I, I, I just, I, I, I really, really want to emphasize uh, that point. The other one I would come back to here, which is interesting in the framing of the question is one that I think will go down and one that I think will go up. And I, I am, I guess, partly envious for anyone who feel that they can predict what share prices are going to do over a four month <laughs> period. Um, you, you know, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I mean, right, I, right. I, I, it's hard enough to figure out what, what, what an average yeah. rate of growth a company is going to get over a five yeah. year period, you know? Yeah. So, so it's sort of like, and, and I'm not, not trying to deride um, the listener here, but, but it's just sort of like, I, I would, I would very honestly and, and respectfully sort of ask, well, why do you think it's going to go up? You know, it's just pandemic Mark two could come out tomorrow, a meteor, you know, or or we just have enter into a golden period of prosperity, unlike the world has ever seen. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? So it's so it's extraordinarily difficult to do all of that kind of stuff. So I would I will always come back personally to 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 looking at these things through through. two different lenses. The first is trying, and this is always puts people off because it, it takes a bit of work, frankly, and it's, it's, it takes a bit of mental uh, mm. um, effort. But, but mm. you, you, I think it's really important to have some notion of, of value. I think it's silly to sort of get to 12 decimal points and have an exact figure and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. But I think, I think as an investor, you, you fundamentally have to have a belief as to what is a sensible price for this business because that frames all of your decisions. So right. whether or not this has gone 25% up or down for you is irrelevant. What matters is how does, your, how does that current price reflect on what you think is fair. So if you think that this thing is 30, 40% overvalued against your independently appraised sense of value, then that's, that's actually a very sensible price. Selling is a very sensible thing to do. And I would, yeah. I would probably cop, cop the tax on that just because of the, the, the overvaluation. If not, then I think if it's, if it's just like a fairly valued or maybe only a fractionally overvalued according to your calculus, then, then I probably would I'd be tempted to sort of hang around for a bit longer and get, get that discount count and the other final point i'll make sorry mate i'm rambling a bit here but is that the other the other thing is is you always look at things on a relative basis it's opportunity cost again so so look at this alternative investment and now don't again get into the 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 issue of trying to figure out what the share price is going to do over the short term. But if if the risk reward proposition, if the value proposition is significantly better than the other one, that is that is the impetus to switch switch your money across. Um, 
and hopefully that that helps. I know there's a there's a lot to unpack in all of that, but just yeah. to reiterate, forget about your profit and loss. Look at things on on a relative basis, and always compare price with what your your notion of valuation is. I think you've nailed it, mate. I'm going to add to it though a little bit, and only just to say that I agree with you in almost entirety about ignoring the ignoring how much you made or lost. Except that tax kind of it doesn't matter in this case because the amount of money that that's is made is is implicated in how much tax he's going to pay and therefore how far back he starts before he reinvests the next lot of money. So yeah. to some degree, yeah. you know, if, if I'd have made a 400% gain, then I'm going to have to pay 20% of the current share price in capital gains tax before I get to reinvest it. And mm. so the next mm. idea has to, and that's assuming, by the way, he waits for the full 12 months. Um, that, that, that means, you know, he's got to get something that's going to make back that tax and then more to justify selling it. Uh, and that's mm. the bank example we used earlier. I think mm. in this case, though, I'm actually I'm with you in terms of the the decision, but but I want to just go through the implication a little bit differently. If you made a 25% gain, and I don't know what tax rate you're on, Stephen, and it's not my business, but let's say you're on somewhere between 30 and 45%, you're going to have to pay somewhere between four and 12 points of that gain back in tax before you start reinvesting. And so your question really is not only from Andrew is exactly right about opportunity cost. What is the best idea from here? Just be mindful if you sell, the new stock's got to do a little bit better than the old stock like for like to make up for the tax you're going to pay now you have to pay tax on either of them eventually when you sell them so it's not a it's not a zero sum game but if you think about how much cash you'll reinvest you've got 100 bucks now you're going to be reinvesting something between 96 and 88 dollars or 88 96 dollars and so that's got to make some more back before it goes further ahead now i'm not saying you shouldn't do that mm. if that stock is is a terrible business that has been pumped by everybody else and is going to crash 90 percent, then yeah get the hell out <laughs> you know take, take your money and run if it's if it's though something that you know is a reasonable business, and as Andrew said, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen in the next four months. Um, if you can, great. But um, you know, I, I, I own plenty of stocks that are super volatile just because they are. Um, they're not even unusual, right? This is what happens day to day in the market. The market's mm, all over normal. the place just because it is. And we're going to talk about the fact that market's doing nothing right now, uh, Andrew. We'll leave that till till next week. But um, the very the very idea of you know we don't know what's happening next. I I would simply line them up side by side and just say right, I've got two businesses. I, at the prevailing prices, which one do I think is a better investment over the over time? Uh, I would be inclined to hold on for the twelve months, probably. Uh, if if you think it's going to be roughly the same, you might as well. You know, that that four month gain. If you if you if you are on the fifty percent tax bracket, for example, the difference of the gain is probably more than the average return you're going to get from the stock market anyway. So if I was playing averages, I'd be like, you know what? I I I'd, on average, if you had hundred of these, I think on average you'd be better off holding than selling. But for all I know, the shares could crash twenty percent tomorrow when you're calling me names. Uh, all the shares go up forty percent tomorrow, and you're, you know, I'm a genius telling you to hold on, but I don't, I don't know. You don't know. Andrew doesn't know. No one knows. Um, and so you're probably better to just, just keep a, uh, yeah. I, I think you know, ignore the tax and say right. If I had this, would, would I buy this company at today's price, or would I buy something else? If you know the answer to that, and again, allowing for the fact you're going to be selling with less capital on the new company, I'd make my decision from there. But if I didn't know where share price was going to go, and I don't, I'd be reasonably inclined to hang on. I think. But there you go. Yeah, and, and one other wrinkle I would, would say here is um, it would depend on – like so you can carry forward capital losses. So so maybe you've done 25% on this particular investment, but you know, meanwhile over there you've lost 50% or something like that. Right, so right, when right. – and that can offset it. So that's, that, that, is, that is something else to, to mm-hmm. factor in. But yeah, hopefully all of that has helped. Yeah, I like it. Mate, uh, we, we are well and truly done. Uh, before we do go, though- <laughs> What, what was our target? It was an aspirational 40 minutes or something? Uh, I think in the not, first two episodes I've done, we've let's blown through that. <laughs> uh, let, let's instead just uh, just tell our listeners how they can get in contact with us. If you're on Twitter, and you should be, you can hit Andrew up at Sage underscore Simeon. 
Trust me, I've tried to get him to change that Twitter handle. He refuses. Sage <laughs> underscore Simeon is right, isn't it, Andrew? I think that's right. That's it. Yes. I, that, I, I, know, I, wise wise monkey. Wise Stuck monkey, the- you know. So it's, 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 a, it's a playful juxtaposition. And uh, I, I really regret starting Twitter with that now. And it's a <laughs> I, I feel as I'm kind of s- stuck with it. So, yeah. Excuse me. All I'm saying is not too late, mate. If you want to change your handle, I'll happily announce the new one next week. If you want to hit me up, you can go to at TMFScottP. The Motley Fool is at the Motley Fool AU. And because you've been so gracious to come on uh, and spend some of your time with Andrew, what's the Strawman Twitter account? Uh, it's Strawman, jeez, oh it's Strawman underscore invest. Strawman <laughs> underscore invest. There we go. And you can go to strawman.com as well. That's an easier one to remember. And I'm sure you That's, can find yeah, more about that. Yeah, just go there. Yeah, All right. Sure. Also, you can hit us up on Instagram. I'm at TMF Scott P. And the Motley Fool is at the Motley Fool AU. Andrew, are you all the all straw man on Instagram yet? No, I haven't done the Instagram thing. I might Not have yet. set all up right. an account. And if you're on Facebook, actually, I can confirm. Uh, I can confirm on? that the Twitter is is all one word: straw man invest. So straw man invest. No underscore straw man at straw man yeah. invest on Twitter. There you go. <laughs> yeah. If you're on Facebook, go to Scott Phillips Money or go to the Motley Fool Australia. Is there a straw man account on uh, on Facebook, Andrew? I should know these things. I'll, I'll do them research. Yeah, there is. But I, I oh man, I, I'll give you a high horse rant on Facebook one of these days. So I, 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 <laughs> Let's I, I'm virtually. <laughs> never i virtually never use it but there you just go, go to the go web to we, we are a social platform so don't go to another social platform to visit our social platform just come to our social platform finished no <laughs> okay go we'll pause it anyway because we've 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 well and truly gone over time uh make sure you do subscribe to one of those and of course subscribe to the triple a motley for money podcast through itunes through android <coughs> excuse me or through the Listener app. We're part of the Listener family through Southern Cross Austereo. And that means you won't miss a single episode. And frankly, you don't want to miss Sunday's episode because we will come back with a special mailbag edition this coming Sunday. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Happy investing. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.